President Biden met today with a group of Democratic governors to discuss how to protect abortion rights after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. It's Friday, July 1st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. This week, the Supreme Court curbed the EPA's authority to set carbon emission limits on existing power plants. The head of the agency says the ruling is disappointing. It is a setback, but it does not take EPA out of the game. Odessa is one of Ukraine's most important ports and tourist destinations. And while Russian airstrikes grow closer, life goes on. Sometimes I worry, he says. Sometimes I don't. If I worry all the time, I should live in a bomb shelter. Also, you'll hear contenders for Song of the Summer. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The nation's Democratic governors are trying to determine the next steps for their states now that the U.S. Supreme Court's overturned Roe v. Wade. Today, President Biden convened a virtual meeting with the group to brainstorm one option, codify abortion rights into federal law. But getting around GOP opposition in the Senate would take ending the filibuster, and two Democratic senators won't do that. Another option, President Biden says, is widening the Democratic majority in Congress in November. I I predict if we don't, if we don't take this, keep the Senate, increase it in the House, we're going to be in a situation where the Republicans are going to pass a nationwide prohibition consistent with what the Supreme Court ruled. GOP-led states are doubling down on anti-abortion laws. Florida's ban on the procedure more than 15 weeks into the pregnancy has taken effect. New grim details are surfacing about last night's deadly standoff in eastern Kentucky. The Floyd County Sheriff described today how officers encountered, quote, pure hell as they attempted to serve an arrest warrant at a home, but instead came under a hail of bullets. Two officers and a police canine were killed. Five other officers were injured. Stan Ingold of member station WEKU has the latest. Floyd County Sheriff John Hunt spoke to reporters after the accused gunman appeared in court. He said deputies were at the scene Thursday to investigate a domestic dispute. Hunt says it appears the shooter had a plan in place. When they arrived, uh, they had no chance. Uh, this guy had a, uh, seemed to be a, a plan, and uh, he pretty much executed that plan almost to precision. And uh, thank God we were uh, at least able to some survive that did. Hunt says along with those killed and wounded by the shooter, a deputy is being treated for carbon monoxide poisoning after taking shelter under a car during the standoff. For NPR News, I'm Stan Ingold in Richmond, Kentucky. Uh, by the way, the 49-year-old suspect was arraigned this morning and pleaded not guilty. He was jailed on a $10 million bond. The suspected driver of a truck in which dozens of migrants were found dead earlier this week says he was unaware the air conditioning unit had failed. Here's NPR's Joel Rose. According to court documents, one of the men arrested, Christian Martinez, texted the suspected driver on Monday with a manifest for the truck and a location in Laredo, Texas. Martinez allegedly told a government informant that the driver did not know that the truck's air conditioning wasn't working. Authorities say police later found the suspected driver, Omero Zamorano Jr., hiding in brush near the abandoned tractor-trailer in San Antonio. In addition to Zamorano and Martinez, two other men have been charged in connection with the incident. Fifty-three migrants from Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador died after being trapped in the trailer, making it one of the deadliest human smuggling tragedies on U.S. soil. It's NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The state's highest court will hear a request next week to block Massachusetts from mailing out ballot applications to more than 4.7 million voters. A group, including the state Republican Party chairman, is challenging the state's new law that makes voting by mail permanent. The group says the law violates the state constitution's allowances for absentee voting. Boston Public Schools have under two months to implement reforms the state is demanding. The district will have an interim leader over the summer, while new school superintendent Mary Skipper wraps up work as the leader of Somerville Schools. Ruby Reyes with the community education group Boston Education Justice Alliance says Boston schools need knowledgeable staff to help with special education. Families are just so desperate for services and needs. And there's been so much turnover in central office staffing around actually knowing supports and resources for families. In addition to improving special education, the state is calling for a safety audit and a review of school bathrooms. Several fare changes on the MBTA take effect today. T riders now can make a second transfer between buses and subways without paying more. The T also is reducing the cost of an unlimited one-day link pass by $1.75. The seven-day link pass for passengers who qualify for reduced fares is now $10. Traffic heading to Cape Cod is heavy for the start of the holiday weekend. The slowdowns on Route 3 start in Marshfield. Traffic's heavy five miles before the Sagamore Bridge. Approaching the Bourne Bridge from Route 25, traffic slow for four miles. In sports at Wrigley Field this afternoon, the Red Sox are playing the Cubs. The Sox lead 4-3 to three at the end of the fifth inning. It is 90 degrees this, bo- this afternoon, sunshine in Boston. Tonight, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms. Tomorrow, a chance of showers and thunderstorms, highs in the mid-80s. Sunday, mostly sunny, highs in the mid-80s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The Supreme Court has ruled that the Environmental Protection Agency does not have the authority to set limits on carbon emissions from existing power plants. Experts worry that this could curb the government's ability to fight climate change. President Biden called the decision devastating and vowed to continue tackling the climate crisis. EPA Administrator Michael Regan joins us now to talk about what all of this could mean for his agency. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. So to start, how big of a setback is this ruling to the administration's climate change agenda? You know, it's uh, deeply disappointing to see what the Supreme Court is doing in this ruling. And it is a setback, but it does not take EPA out of the game. Uh, While there are constraints, and we're still reviewing this ruling, uh, the apparent constraints don't prevent EPA from regulating climate pollution. And so we're going to move forward with every legal authority to regulate climate pollution and protect communities uh, that we have. You've pointed out the urgency of this issue, and the Biden administration came into office with the most ambitious climate agenda of any president. There was the pledge to cut U.S. greenhouse gas emissions in half by the end of this decade. How challenging does this ruling make meeting that target? You know, climate action presents an unmatched opportunity 
to ensure global competitiveness, create jobs, lower costs for families, and protect people's health, especially those who've long suffered. And so uh, we are you know, optimistic that we can continue to move forward to do all of these things because the technology is available, the market signals are there. And you know, as a government administration, we want to provide those rules of the road so that industry has the right certainty to make these longer-term investments. If the Biden administration cannot meet its target as it relates to greenhouse gas emissions, could that have ripple effects on the rest of the world's ability to fight the effects of climate change? Well, you know, as I travel internationally and talk to my colleagues around the globe, we talk about the work that we've already done. We, over the past uh, 18 months or so, have done a really good job of focusing on the full suite of climate pollutants. Power plants play a significant role in this larger picture, and that's why uh, the Supreme Court's ruling is disappointing because it's slowing down the momentum of not only curtailing climate change impacts, but the globally competitive aspects that this country can seize to create jobs and grow economic opportunities. And so I remain optimistic. This administration remains optimistic. By the way, it's not just EPA. Uh, The president's vision has the entire government working together, hand in hand. Give us an example of what that whole of government approach looks like. I've heard that cited a number of times by others in the administration as well. What does that look like? You know, it it looks like the conversations that I'm having with uh, Secretary Tom Vilsack in agriculture to think about innovative agricultural practices that can uh, curtail carbon emissions. It looks like the type of partnership that I have with Secretary Jennifer Granholm as we think about the technological solutions of the future, the research and development dollars that the Department of Energy has to invest in advanced technologies are married going hand in hand so that we can get these things at a commercial scale sooner rather than later. Uh, The conversations I'm having with Marty Walsh about the job opportunities, the union opportunities, and how we can grow jobs in the economy. There's an all-of-government approach here. And I think uh, as an administrator, I am working with all of my colleagues to leverage all of those opportunities. We've talked a good deal about the Supreme Court ruling, but I want to broaden out a bit now and talk about Congress. It seems that this ruling puts a good deal more pressure on reaching some sort of a deal on a climate bill on Capitol Hill. And Congress, so far as you know well, has failed to act in any significant way on climate change. How critical is passing a climate bill legislatively to this administration meeting its goals? You know, it's an important piece if we want to keep pace with tackling the climate crisis at the rate that we know we need to and the science tells us. Uh, But, you know, I've said this from day one, the president has a number of tools in his toolbox And EPA has been using those tools from day one uh, while the administration engages with Congress. We're not going to wait. We can't wait. And the administration will continue to work with Congress, and hopefully we'll see Congress act. And lastly, I'm curious, as you assess and continue to assess the impact of this ruling, what message does this send to the American people about the environmental priorities in this country? And I wonder if you worry about further rulings that could come from the court next term that could impede your ability to address what you've described as an urgent crisis. We'll continue to keep our eye on the court uh, and we'll continue to think through how we work and power through uh, some of these setbacks. We have no other option. We have to continue to move forward. I think it sends a message that uh, every single American in this country has a voice. 
and their voices need to be heard. And if their voices are heard, then we'll begin to see more of the types of actions that, uh, that Americans want to see. I think when you look at the polling, uh, you know, most Americans agree that climate change is real and needs to be addressed. Uh, most Americans understand that there are environmental and health impacts from climate change. And so most Americans want us to move forward. Rulings like yesterday prevent us from moving forward as quickly as we would like. So Americans should use their voices as much as possible to ensure that we can move forward and do the things that the American people would like for us to do. That was Michael Regan. He is the administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. President Biden is looking for actions his administration can take to protect abortion rights now that the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade. He says Democrats need more seats in Congress to try to enshrine access to abortion into law. Today, he also warned that he thinks restrictions on abortions could increase if his party loses its narrow majority. If we don't take this, keep the Senate, increase it in the House, we're going to be in a situation where the Republicans are going to pass a nationwide prohibition consistent with what the Supreme Court ruled. Today, he met with Democratic governors from nine states about what they are doing. NPR's Barbara Sprunt is covering the story from the White House. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Ari. Tell us more about the meeting. What did the president want to talk about? Well, yesterday, President Biden said he would have announcements today about steps he'll take to protect abortion rights. But really, this was essentially a virtual listening session with governors. He didn't have any new steps to announce today. Reporters were in the room for the start of it. And what we heard was governors explaining what the situation is like in their states. And we heard the president asking them for more ideas. We're going to hear from one of those governors in another part of the program. Um, What sorts of ideas did they offer him? Well, one thing that they urged was to make use of federal and tribal land in states where abortion has been banned, facilities like military hospitals. And that's interesting that they're still asking for that because we had heard earlier this week from the White House that the idea of using federal lands has been ruled out. Uh, The governors acknowledged the realities of the situation. They're supportive of abortion rights. And so it's going to be up to them to provide those services for people. And one of those governors was uh, New York's Kathy Hochul, and she talked about the financial burden faced by states who will continue to provide abortion like hers. The rights of millions of women across this country are now falling on the shoulders of just a handful of states. Just a handful of states are now going to have to take care of the health care of women from other states. And Biden also talked with uh, North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper. He said his state has already seen an influx of patients coming in for abortion services. Uh, He said one provider has scheduled almost 200 patients from out of state just next week. And if you map that out, that's about 10,000 extra patients coming next year from states that have tight restrictions in place. Uh, But Biden didn't really indicate what kind of extra help is coming for these states. The president has been having a lot of these kinds of meetings, uh, some even before the Supreme Court ruled in this Mm -hmm. case. What are advocates from around the country telling the Biden administration? Yeah, there have been dozens of these kinds of meetings at various levels. Uh, I spoke with Lupe Rodriguez. Uh, She's with the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice. She's in California. She's met with the White House in the last few months for these kinds of conversations. And she told me that she's looking to see action on travel vouchers for women who don't have the money to fly or take a train to another state to get abortion care. And she said that's one concrete action that can be taken, but there's a lot more resources that are going to be needed, even in states that do have protections in place for abortion. 
part of the conversation needs to be what resources are being given to states that that will have abortion access so that they can uh, support the influx of people and support the people in their own state who, who need care. So places like California and New York that have protections in place, the people in those states presumably will continue to seek abortion care at the rates they were before this decision came down. And so now these clinics and providers have to take into account that there's just going to be a lot more people coming from out of state. After the Supreme Court ruled, you spoke with abortion rights supporters who had gone to the court who were frustrated with Democrats and the president for not doing more. How is the White House responding to that criticism? That's right. I've spoken to voters and advocates who say that they feel, I mean, frankly, abandoned by the White House. People who've told me that they've seen the statements, they've seen the speeches and the interviews, but they want to see President Biden and Vice President Harris out there meeting with women and providers at abortion clinics. Biden has been overseas since the decision was handed down. Uh, And the White House is pointing out that this meeting was the first thing he did when he got back. Uh, He says he wants to make this a case that this is an election issue. So to do that, we'll probably see more of these kinds of conversations in the weeks to come. That's NPR's Barbara Sprunt reporting from the White House. Thank you. Thank you. Kids today are dealing with so much. The world that my generation is inheriting isn't a pleasant one. Someone wrote queer on the back windshield. I didn't really fit in with any particular groups. And their mental health is suffering. Come back Monday to All Things Considered for concrete advice to help the young people in your life shoulder the weight of the world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up on All Things Considered, heat waves and lessons learned. Also, the Stranger Things finale. In business news, Western Massachusetts is losing a local newspaper. The Pittsfield Gazette is stopping both print and online editions due to the death of the publisher. Jonathan Levine died from cancer last month. He ran the Gazette for nearly 30 years. On Wall Street, the Dow closed up 314 points to end the day at 31,089. The Nasdaq's up 99 points at 11,127. The S&P 500 closed up 38 points, ending at 38.24. Marketplace has a full range of business news at 6.30. It's 4.18. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood, presenting the Boston Symphony Orchestra, Boston Pops, guest artists, and more in the Berkshire Hills this summer. Details and performance schedule at tanglewood.org. And Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for helping make them the nation's number one children's hospital nine years in a row. bostonchildrens.org slash answers. It is 90 degrees in Boston with sunshine the rest of this afternoon. Tonight, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms and lows in the low 70s. Tomorrow, a chance of showers and thunderstorms. High Saturday in the mid 80s. Sunday should be mostly sunny with highs in the mid 80s. Looking ahead to Monday for the 4th of July, sunny. Temperatures in the low 80s. And keep in mind, if you take pride in following local news, here's a challenge. Take our Boston News Quiz. Go to WBUR.org quiz.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. As summer officially arrived last week, a heat wave broke records all over the U.S. This is more than just uncomfortable. In the U.S., heat kills more people than any other type of extreme weather. Portland, Oregon knows that well. Last year, almost 70 people in the Portland metro area died in a June heat wave. These were people who were found alone with no fan, no air conditioning, many of them older with underlying conditions. That's Dr. Jennifer Vines, who I spoke with a year ago as temperatures hit 110 degrees in Portland. She helped oversee the response to that disaster as the Portland metro area's lead health officer. And we called her up again to hear the lessons learned for this season. So this is just the beginning of the summer and already temperatures are breaking records across the country. What are you in Portland doing right now to prepare for the next three months? We're mobilizing right now the most important part of any heat response, which is communication. And so putting in really structured outreach, making sure people know that the forecast is coming, make sure that they have options for uh, what to do to stay cool and to stay well. Like what? What's your message to them? Right. So our message is making sure people are paying attention to forecasted hot weather and that they have a plan for how they're going to stay cool, uh, whether that's t uh, teaming up with family members, friends, common rooms in apartment buildings, uh, that they know where they can go to give their bodies a break from the heat. One consequence of climate change is that extreme heat is arriving in places that historically have not experienced it. I mean, when I grew up in Portland, summers were temperate and only about a third of homes in the city have air conditioning. So as you look across the country at this growing trend, do you have specific advice for communities that have not dealt with extreme heat in the past? Yeah, I think what I would say to those communities is assume that it can happen, assume that it will happen. And again, the, the foundation is really around communication. So alerting your constituents to the dangers and really having resources for people to know where they can get to stay cool. I know there's a lot of focus in my jurisdiction about cooling shelters and places where people can go to get out of the heat, whether it's libraries, malls, movie theaters, preparing ahead of time for where to direct people to get cool should you have a heat wave is by far the most important thing. Uh, yeah, I'm wondering about when a heat crisis strikes, whether people even know to call 911. Like you can see floodwaters rising in your house. You can tell when a tornado is coming. But heat sneaks up on you. Heat can sneak up on you. And we know from other disastrous heat waves that after about two days is when people really, uh, when their bodies actually start to fail. And one of the most important components of a heat wave is actually the overnight cooling, because that's what gives our bodies a rest. Uh, and unfortunately, we're looking at uh, not only daytime highs, but the level of nighttime cooling when a heat wave happens, because earlier in the summer, we've had less of a chance for our bodies to adapt to heat but it can overtake people in ways unexpected. It can happen quickly. It can also happen again after a, a couple of days of just really a lot of heat stress on the body just from sitting at home. Beyond the importance of communication, are there other lessons that Portland learned from that deadly heat wave last year that you think will be useful as the rest of the country experiences similar things this summer? 
We did actually. Uh, we learned that uh, for for cooling shelters, when those do have a role, having a smaller settings, more dispersed uh, geographically, are uh, more welcoming to people, and there's less uh, less conflict in bringing lots of people together if it's a smaller setting. Uh, a larger also... number of smaller places, not the convention center with thousands of beds. Exactly. So those smaller scale cooling centers uh, were an important lesson learned. Another one is um, allowing pets in all of those places because a lot of people will not leave their animals behind. And then finally, uh, making sure that public transit is on board with the, the sense of emergency and making sure that uh, people can ride for free to get someplace cool. That's Dr. Jennifer Vines, lead health officer for the Portland metro area. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Netflix's hit supernatural drama, Stranger Things, drops two final episodes in its fourth season today. NPR TV critic Eric Dagan says these oversized episodes, which have been anticipated by fans for weeks, succeed by leaning into everything that makes the show compelling and exciting. What I have come to love about Stranger Things fourth season, beyond the expanded episodes, new characters, and amped up action, is how established characters reveal new depths, like Dr. Martin Brenner, a meticulous, ruthless scientist played by Matthew Modine. He helped raise the show's heroine, a teen with telekinetic and telepathic powers known as Eleven, played by Millie Bobby Brown. The doctor's been helping Eleven strengthen her powers to take on Vecna, also named Henry, a villain from an alternate universe called the Upside Down who has targeted Eleven's friends. And Brenner has figured out why. Your friends are in terrible danger. With each victim he takes, Henry is chiseling away at the barrier that exists between our two worlds. Chiseling? Imagine, if you will, the barrier between our worlds is a concrete dam. Henry is putting cracks in this dam. And eventually it will reach a breaking point and the dam will burst. Not exactly the most comforting pep talk when you're trying to stop an apocalypse. Stranger Things has always turned on an improbable premise. A group of nerdy kids in the fictional town of Hawkins, Indiana keep horrible creatures from consuming our world with the help of a few bumbling adults. Netflix dropped seven episodes of the show's new season in May, saving two oversized episodes for today, including a season-ending installment over two hours long. I really like these oversized episodes, stuffed with kinetic action and effects, featuring key characters spread all over the globe. For example, David Harbour's emotionally damaged sheriff from Hawkins, Jim Hopper, was thought dead but actually landed in a Russian prison. In these final episodes, after Renona Ryder's Joyce Byers grabbed a friend and raced off to save him, they are stuck trying to force a bizarre Russian pilot to fly them out of the country. Watch your mouth or I am going to take this. I'm going to rub it along the bottom of my shoe and I'm going to jam it. Down your throat. Go ahead. But then you'll never make it out of my country alive. So you can get us out. For a glass of water and hot steam bath. And five feet stack of American dollars. Okay, maybe that makes more sense when you've seen all the episodes. I also loved moments when the action would pause for characters to connect. In one moment, Joyce's son Will and his friend Mike, who's dating Eleven, are looking for her. Mike, played by Finn Wolfhard, frets he's not good enough for his super-powered girlfriend. Will, played by Noah Schnapp, says he's wrong. It's just she's so different from other people. And when you're, when you're different, sometimes you feel like a mistake. But you make her feel like she's not a mistake at all. 
like she's better for being different. And that gives her the courage to fight on. If she was mean to you or, or she seemed like she was pushing you away, it's probably just because she's scared of losing you, just like you're scared of losing her. As Will hides the tears in his eyes, you wonder if he hasn't revealed a bit more about how he feels towards Mike than he planned. It's those moments that really left me loving these last two installments of Stranger Things fourth season and eagerly awaiting what they have planned for the next. I'm Eric Deggins. Planning to travel this summer? Well, buckle up and pack some patience because demand for travel is up, but there are fewer flights to go around. It's going to be a Hunger Games-like battle to get the fares you want, the flights you want. Why summer travel is so chaotic right now on today's episode of our podcast, Consider This. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 429 and ahead on all things considered among all the issues of the last few years, here's one you might not have pondered, the shortage of pyrotechnicians. Also, it is July 1st, and that means it is Bobby Bonilla Day. Every year on this date, the New York Mets must send a $1.2 million check to the former player who hasn't played baseball in more than 20 years. It is 90 degrees in Boston. Sunshine the rest of this afternoon, a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight. Tomorrow, a chance of showers and thunderstorms, highs in the mid-80s. Sunday, mostly sunny, highs in the mid-80s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Peabody Essex Museum. Patrick Kelly, Runway of Love, celebrates the genius of a self-taught designer who changed fashion forever. On view now, tickets at PEM.org. And Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine. This summer, Circle Round, WBUR's storytelling podcast for the young and young at heart, is coming to a page and stage near you. Join me, Rebecca Shear, on July 9th at WBUR City Space in Boston for a party celebrating two new Circle Round picture books. Plus, we're keeping the party going all summer long with live storytelling events at bookstores and museums across New England. Find tickets and more information at WBUR.org slash Circle Round. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Washington State, two new gun laws went into effect today that ban the manufacturing and selling of high-capacity magazines and homemade ghost guns that cannot be traced. Critics of the new state laws say they violate the Second Amendment's right to bear arms, but Washington Governor Jay Inslee says those critics are out of bounds. These are weapons of war. They were designed to kill dozens of people in seconds, and that is the only purpose they're only manufactured for, and that is not a legitimate purpose. Governor Inslee says people deserve protection and that these laws have been shown to reduce mass shootings, and the vast majority of Washingtonians support them. He also says the state will enforce the laws and protect people from being assaulted with guns that are not traceable. Senate Democrats are calling on the Pentagon to take immediate steps to protect access to abortion for service members. NPR's Windsor Johnson tells us that letter to the Defense Department comes a week after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. 
A group of senators is asking the Pentagon to ensure that service members seeking abortions in states where the procedure is banned or severely restricted are given the time off to travel out of state and guaranteed privacy protections. The lawmakers are also asking for guarantees that service members won't face retaliation for their decision. The letter specifically calls out states that house large military bases, including Texas and Florida. In response to the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, the Pentagon says it will continue to provide abortions at military facilities in cases of rape or incest or when a mother's life is at risk. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street as we head into the long holiday weekend. The Dow gained 321 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A former state senator who's running for Congress is facing charges that he stole a gun from an elderly constituent and then misled investigators looking into the situation. The state attorney general's office announced today that Dean Tran, a Republican from Fitchburg, was indicted for allegedly using his position as a public official to intimidate the constituent into giving up the firearms of her late husband. Tran is also charged with forcing his way into the constituent's home. Tran has denied the charges. He's running against Democratic Congresswoman Laurie Trahan in the 3rd District. If you are driving to Cape Cod for the start of the holiday weekend, then make sure to bring your patience. Traffic heading south on Route 3 is heavy from Duxbury through Plymouth. There's a five-mile backup heading onto the Sagamore Bridge. At the Bourne Bridge, there's a four-mile backup. Some people trying to fly in or out of Logan Airport are being forced to hurry up and wait. Flight tracker flightaware.com says some 215 flights currently are delayed, and there are 15 flight cancellations at Logan. Dana-Farber and Brigham and Women's Hospital are bringing skin cancer screenings to local beaches this summer. Starting next week, a van with a fully equipped exam room will be parked in shifts at Revere, Carson, Nantasket, Nahant, and Wollaston Beaches. Community outreach specialist Sabrina Gonzalez says anyone's welcome to get checked out, especially people with any moles or areas of skin they're concerned about. Any lesion that is changing, that is itching, that is bleeding, changing in color, in size. Gonzalo says everyone should wear sunscreen to protect from skin cancer, regardless of how prone they are to burning. Researchers at MIT have created small robots that can mimic the flight patterns and habits of fireflies. They're the size of the bugs and weigh the same as a paperclip. Professor Kevin Chen leads the team that created the robots. He says they can be used for a search and rescue mission in dangerous and remote areas. They can be used to conduct inspections of mechanical equipment. And he says he hopes they can be used to act like bees to pollinate flowers and vegetables. In warehouses, there are many levels of vegetation you want to grow, and potentially even thinking about pollination in space or on Mars. Chen says he has no plans to allow the use of the little flying robots for any kind of spying or surveillance. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MassTLC, the region's leading technology industry group, helping business leaders get connected, gain visibility, and drive business impact. More at MassTLC.org. In sports at Wrigley Field, the Red Sox lead the Cubs 5-3 to three in the sixth inning. It is 90 degrees in Boston with sunshine this afternoon. A chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight and tomorrow a chance of showers and thunderstorms with highs in the low 80s. And Sunday and Monday, the 4th of July, sunshine. 
highs in the 80s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Russia has increased its aerial assault on southern Ukraine recently. It's been firing missiles at areas outside of the Donbass, hitting food storage facilities in the city of Mykolaiv. And just hours ago, at least 21 people were killed and dozens were injured when Russian missiles struck a residential tower and recreation center just outside the city of Odessa. NPR's Peter Granitz reports. The sun on the beach has a red skull and crossbones, warning of landmines laid to prevent an amphibious landing by Russians. That doesn't stop a dozen or so people from hopping the fence to catch the sun on a beautiful, hot afternoon. One of them is an older man named Vasily. He doesn't give us his last name. You sense he's a little embarrassed for breaking the rules. Sometimes I worry, he says. Sometimes I don't. If I worry all the time, I should live in a bomb shelter. While he may sound carefree, others are frustrated. Slava Bilecki has a beer in hand as he takes in the beach and waves. People are tired from the war, he says. People want to live their normal lives. Volodymyr Dubovic is the director of international studies at Odessa Mechnikov University. He says Russia's desire to capture Odessa is cultural, historic, and economic. Odessa is uh, very important to their psyche. I mean, uh, for their understanding of the Russian world in, uh, in Ukraine, there's no place but Odessa. The city is Russian-speaking. Its port made it one of the biggest cities in the Russian Empire. And many Russians vacationed here and did business here before the war. A couple takes wedding photos in front of the sandbags fortifying the city's 19th century opera hall. A street musician plays for tips nearby, and a young mother holds her baby on a bench. Fragrant roses ring the empty fountain in the theater's garden. Across that garden is City Hall. It's where we meet the Russian-speaking mayor, Hennady Truhanov. The occupier's task is to take Odessa, but save as much of it as possible. Including the port, which has been idle since February. It had been Ukraine's most active seaport before Russian warships blockaded any exports from leaving. Truhanov himself has a history with Russia. He was in the Soviet army and then served in Ukraine's parliament as a member of the Kremlin-aligned Party of Regions. But he says if Russia were to invade Odessa, the city would know he's on Ukraine's side. So my position, I had it. I have it, and I haven't changed it. Odessa is a Ukrainian city. Odessa is the most patriotic city in Ukraine. Russia's goal, Truhanov says, is to choke off Odessa from the rest of Ukraine. They will try to surround Odessa, to block it from the sea with their warships. If they manage, but I'm sure they won't, to take Mykolaiv, then go on to Transnistria, and they'd begin fighting from there. It would let them cut Ukraine from the sea. 
Mykolaiv is a city on the front lines of the war 80 miles to the east. Russia continues to launch missiles into its residential and industrial areas, including its port. And Transnistria is a Russian-backed breakaway region of Moldova to the west. There are about 1,500 troops there, but Ukrainian military sources say they're ill-prepared to launch any real assault on Odessa. There has been no ground fighting in Odessa, and the missiles that target the city are rare. 200,000 people left the city early in the war, but many came back. And the war and the port closure are negatively affecting the city's economy. Still, its relative safety has attracted 20,000 displaced people, though the mayor says the real number could be more than double that. Every day, hundreds of them line up at a converted school in the central part of town. It's now a place for people fleeing the east to get food and clothes. A young boy points to the shelves of donated toys. He asks for a bulldozer and gets it. Marina Semenyuk is the volunteer coordinator for the local NGO called Hospitable House, which runs the site. We don't call them internally displaced people. We call them our guests, she says, because we hope there will be peace and we'll rebuild and everything will be good. Tanya Lavrenchuk and her two kids fled Slovyansk in eastern Ukraine in April. They chose Odessa because her mom was here. Tanya was able to find housing and a job because she remained in Ukraine. She doesn't need any new work permit or to learn a new language like she would have if she fled the country. Her kids have adapted. This is an adventure for them. They're happy, she says, which is good because she doesn't think she'll ever return home to the Donbass. The city has an enormous food market. It's a complex, several city blocks big. Rows and rows of sellers hawk vegetables and flowers outside. There are entire halls full of cheese and fish stands. It's the end of the day, and a customer negotiates the price of a piece of pork with a butcher. A pork seller named Valentina Schlitzova says business has not really slowed down since the war began. Thank God things are normal for now, she says. I hope they'll be normal always. Peter Granitz, NPR News, Odessa. On the 4th of July, Americans come together to celebrate independence, and for many that celebration includes watching pyrotechnics, also known as fireworks. But I think most of all, it represents how we celebrate our pride and patriotism. That's Julie Heckman. She's the American Pyrotechnic Association's executive director. Heckman says that many Americans have a memory of their first 4th of July, of gathering with family and friends, just waiting for the sun to set and the fireworks to start. But this year, not every town or city will get to celebrate on the actual 4th of July because of a shortage of qualified pyrotechnicians. Lake Meredith, Texas, had to cancel the show, and College Park and Ocean City, Maryland, had to reschedule their fireworks, as did the city of Fairfax, Virginia. Kathy Salgado is director of Parks and Recreation there. We were notified a couple weeks ago from our fireworks supplier that they had to cancel our fireworks show because they did not have a qualified licensed pyrotechnician available to shoot the show. Obviously, it sent us scrambling. When she received the cancellation email from their supplier, she was disappointed but understood why they were short-staffed. You have to understand that pyrotechnicians, it's not a full-time job, they're contractual. So they literally are, are working the major events of the year. And obviously July 4th is the number one major event of the year. And hence, everybody wants to do their fireworks show on July 4th. The fireworks in Fairfax are now scheduled for July 5th. Over in the city of Vienna, Virginia, their fireworks show is tonight. 
Leslie Herman is the Parks and Recreation Director. She says they also changed the date of their show after they received a letter from the same supplier. I think part of it is that coming out of COVID, some folks that they used for as pyrotechnicians just weren't doing it any longer. Julie Heckman from the Pyrotechnic Association says that while staffing around Independence Day is usually difficult. We always say not every community can have their show on July 4th. It is physically impossible for the firework industry to make that happen. The pandemic made things worse. The firework industry was completely crippled in 2020. They lost 90 percent of their revenues. But now the industry's bouncing back, which forced Fairfax to reschedule. But their Parks and Recreation Director Kathy Salgado looks at it this way. I guess on the bright side, we're celebrating July 4th for two days. And she promises Fairfax residents a great Independence Day show, including a spectacular grand finale just on the 5th of July. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Today's July 1st, the day each year when the New York Mets must send a $1.2 million check to an all-star player named Bobby Bonilla. The thing is, Bonilla hasn't played baseball in more than 20 years. Kenny Malone and James Sneed from our Planet Money podcast explain. The story of Bobby Bonilla Day starts in the year 2000, back when the Mets owed their famous player about $6 million. But rather than just get paid all at once... Bobby Bo agreed to let the Mets keep his money to invest in new players, stadium upgrades, whatever. And in return, the Mets agreed to pay Bobby back in 35 years a total of about $30 million. Now, $6 million turning into $30 million seems like a really bad deal for the Mets. Yeah, just ask Mets fans at Citi Field. All right, I'm going to say three words and I just want to get your reaction. All right. Bobby Bonilla Day. Worst deal ever. Are we still paying that guy? It's just the day that the Mets are the laughingstock of the MLB. But, but listen, we are here today to defend the Mets with compound interest. The idea that interest has a way of snowballing. Sure, when you invest money, it earns interest. And then your new, bigger pile of money earns interest. And then that even bigger pile of money earns interest too. Right, so a dollar today has all this earning potential. When Bobby Bonilla let the Mets keep his $6 million, he was also letting them keep decades of earning potential. And when you look at the Bobby Bonilla Day deal, $6 million in the year 2000 is theoretically the same as that $30 million over time with compounded interest. It pays Bobby Bo back for that lost earning potential. Yellow. Is this Bobby Bonilla? Speaking. When we caught up with Bobby Bonilla, he was living in Bradenton, Florida. He now works with the Baseball Players Union. Uh, do you want us to call you Bobby, uh, Bo, Mr. Bonilla? No, What's... that's for guys. Guys, the only time you have to write, get my name right is when you're giving me a check. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, today is the day Bobby Bonilla gets his $1.2 million check from the Mets. Do you go get a drink? Do you play some golf? Do you celebrate it? Yeah, I, I, well, once I'm done answering every single text message that I <laughs> which kind of, on that particular day takes all day. They forget my birthday, which is fine. Yeah. No one forgets July 1st. No, 
No, they wouldn't. No one. Bobby told us what he was thinking back in 2000. So, you know, one of the fears that a lot of athletes have is, is losing everything. And it's yeah. a very valid fear. And it's, it's something that keeps all athletes up at night. And I just had a real fear. So I said, you know, let me let me find a way to put some more money away. If Bobby Bonilla Day is a reminder to other athletes that a dollar today can be turned into way more tomorrow, then Bobby says celebrate. And so every July 1st, let us raise a glass to Bobby Bonilla Day and the power of compound interest. Kenny Malone. James Sneed, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 448 and ahead on All Things Considered, you'll hear about the Democratic governor's meeting with President Biden regarding the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade. Also, you'll get predictions for songs that define the summer of 2022. That and more coming up on All Things Considered. It is 90 degrees in Boston. Tonight, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms. Tomorrow, a chance of showers and thunderstorms and highs in the mid-80s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Back Bay Life Science Advisors, strategy consulting and investment banking services for global life science companies, bblsa.com, and Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Fall semester starts September 19th, semesteroff.com. When Britain turned control of Hong Kong over to China in 1997, children born that year were told they'd be the leaders of tomorrow. 25 years later, some of them are disillusioned. We know that hope is important, but at the same time, it could be very, it could be toxic. That conversation, plus the latest news, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. You know a summertime song when you hear it. Maybe it's the way it makes you want to dance, or maybe it's the poppy lightness. Or maybe it just sounds kind of hot. Sometimes all I think about is you, late nights in the middle. But what makes it the song of the summer? Well, it is the start of summer 2022, so we asked Stephen Thompson from NPR Music to stop by and help us answer that question. Hey! Hey, Wana! Okay, so it's the start of July, so maybe it's a little bit early to crown any one song as this year's song of the summer, but... Let's talk about some of the early contenders. What's on your list? Well, we got a bunch of them. You know, Beyonce just dropped a new song called Break My Soul. 
which is this big, danceable, defiant number. It's a you know, it's song of defiance for a cultural moment that I think matches the spirit of that song. You won't break my soul. Lizzo has a song called About Damn Time, which is basically, that song just transports you to a disco ball lit roller rink in your mind. It has this really catchy and nostalgic vibe that's just really easy to hook into. ones that's really, really jumping out at me as a possible song of the summer for the summer of 2022 is Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush, which actually came out in 1985. But thanks to its placement in uh, the TV show Stranger Things, it's kind of had this huge run back onto the charts after 37 years, where all of a sudden it's everywhere. Help me understand this. That song is literally older than I am, and yet it is in the top 10 on the Billboard Hot 100 right now. I feel like if I scroll through TikTok, I'm constantly hearing it in the background. Is the shelf life of a pop song just getting longer and longer? I mean, absolutely. I mean, I already mentioned Lizzo up front. Lizzo had a song called Truth Hurts that was kind of one of the big songs of the summer in 2019. And that song came out 18 months earlier, kind of Mm. before it broke out as a single. It had this very slow rise, aided by TikTok, uh, that, that kind of eventually propelled it onto the pop charts. Old Town Road by Lil Nas X, which was the song of the summer for 2019. It was number one on Billboard for 19 consecutive weeks. That song came out in December of the year before. And had this kind of slow rise where they were able to kind of repurpose it with remixes and kind of the song became like this living and evolving organism. I got the horses in the bag. And so it's it's kind of a natural progression, I think, to have a song like Running Up That Hill, which has been present but not necessarily ubiquitous for the last 37 years, that, that, that combination of the excellence of the song and people's familiarity with the song all coming together to just make a moment where it's like, why not running up that hill? Why not a song from 1985 if that's what everybody wants to hear right now? You talked about some of the hot songs of the last few summers, like Old Town Road and others. But when you think about like what makes the quintessential song of the summer, what kind of qualities does that song have? Well, I think one thing really is ubiquity. I think ubiquity breeds more ubiquity uh, with some of these things, but I also think there's a shared vibe, a, a sense of joy or release, or in the case of running up that hill, nostalgia. Uh, I, I think a soaring quality helps. 
but it's it's a little bit hard sometimes to put your finger on it. Sometimes it's just a vibe. The summer of 2019 that I mentioned before with Old Town Road also had Bad Guy by Billie Eilish, and that song wasn't necessarily like a, a joyful song or a sense of like rolling down the windows and experiencing a sense of release. It was just a cool vibe that everybody could kind of marinate in at the same time. Duh. You mentioned Beyonce's Break My Soul earlier, and I want to bring in another artist here and talk about Drake's album, Honestly Nevermind. And when I think about those, I think about the fact that both of them drew so heavily on house music. Oh, when you're ready, we can put this behind us. Maybe we can find us again. I know. Is there any chance maybe we get a genre of the summer? I mean, I think that is very, very possible. And I think that's pretty easy to tie to the pandemic, right? Where we spent a couple of summers, a lot of us spent those summers cooped up in our houses. Literally in our houses. Literally in our houses. I'm currently talking to you from my closet, (laughs) and it is the summer of 2022. (laughs) So I think a lot of artists took a guess that people were going to really want music that took them out into the world, out into the clubs, out among other people, sharing communal experiences close up against one another. We've spent the last couple years inward facing, and so music that takes us outside makes a lot of sense, or outside into a club. I don't want to... Now, maybe it is just the news cycle that we're in right now, but a lot of stuff feels really divided and contentious culturally, politically, socially. And I guess I wonder, is it even possible for all of us to agree on something that feels as simple as a song of the summer? I mean... The likelihood that we're all going to agree on one song <laughs> doesn't doesn't feel super high. But the thing that's great about songs is they form this shared cultural language that has a really low barrier to entry. You have this ubiquity and familiarity. You have, in the case of a running up that hill, you, you can cross generational divides by enjoying these songs at the same time. And so I think what constitutes the song of the summer can be really culturally important because it's something we're all experiencing together. And I think it's anything that reminds us we're all in this together is is a great and powerful thing. That is Stephen Thompson from NPR Music. We will have you on again at the end of the summer. We'll have to see how things play out. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anna. Nothing to say and everything gets in the way. Seems you cannot be replaced. And I'm the one who will stay. Oh, in this world, it's just us. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at nervivehealth.com.
Indeed.com. And from Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. It is 90 degrees in Boston. Coming up on 5 o'clock as All Things Considered continues. In the forecast, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms tonight. Lows in the low 70s. Tomorrow, a chance of showers and thunderstorms. Highs in the mid-80s. Sunday, mostly sunny. Highs in the mid-80s. And looking ahead to Monday, the 4th of July, sunshine and highs in the low 80s. I'm executive editor for news, Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Travel obstacles abound, including high gas prices and airline turmoil, but it's a busy holiday weekend. You would think that, uh, you know, setting a record this year for the number of people going by car wouldn't be happening, and yet it is. It's Friday, July 1st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up... Arnie Reyes was teaching at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, when a gunman attacked. He was the only survivor from his classroom. There's really no excuse for for 77 minutes. Reyes tells his story. And WNBA star Brittany Griner has been detained in Russia for months on drug charges. Now her trial's beginning. The Russian government argues this is just a story of an American, okay, a high-profile American, facing the consequences of carrying illegal substances into Russia. It's 501 First This News. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. In the wake of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, President Biden is calling on voters to mobilize ahead of the November midterm elections. As NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports, he warns he thinks things could get worse if Republicans make gains in Congress this November. In a meeting with President Biden, a group of nine Democratic governors shared what they're doing to shore up abortion protections. Several governors asked Biden to consider using federal VA and military hospitals to provide more care, something the White House has previously said has been ruled out. Biden predicted that if Republicans take control of Congress next year, a national ban on abortion could become a reality. If we don't take this, keep the Senate, increase it in the House, we're going to be in a situation where the Republicans are going to pass a nationwide prohibition consistent with what the Supreme Court ruled. He said if Democrats make gains in Congress, they can seek to enshrine abortion rights in federal law. Barbara Sprunt, NPR News, the White House. The World Health Organization is issuing a statement out of its European region saying that with monkeypox cases, they're tripling over the past two weeks. Now is not the time to be complacent. More from NPR's Ari Daniel. The European region now comprises 90 percent of all confirmed and globally reported cases of monkeypox. The virus has spilled into 31 countries within the region. Dr. Hans Kluge, the WHO regional director for Europe, said it's quick spread has, quote, illustrated yet again how diseases endemic to or emerging in a few countries can swiftly expand into outbreaks that impact distant regions and indeed the entire world. To rein in the monkeypox outbreak, Kluge is advocating for stronger surveillance, clear and accurate public health messaging, and firm political leadership. 
Ari Daniel, NPR News. Even as pre-pandemic size crowds are descending on the nation's airports, it is likely to be years before the airline infrastructure is back at those levels. Airlines are experiencing delays even before the start of the busy 4th of July holiday weekend as they struggle with staffing issues after laying off employees during the height of the pandemic slowdown. However, TSA Administrator David Pekoski is promising his staff, including airport screeners, will be ready with about a thousand workers on standby. We had last Sunday the highest number of passengers since the pandemic, so um, I expect that you know, we're going to see something similar ballpark to, uh, to last weekend. Airlines are also canceling flights amid issues over pay and benefits for workers, with off-duty Delta pilots picking it at airports yesterday. Bad weather in some parts of the country could also complicate travel plans. Stocks bounce back sharply higher today in relatively light pre-holiday trading. The Dow up 321 points, close at 31,097. The Nasdaq was up 99 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. People heading to Cape Cod or going through Lagan Airport for the July 4th holiday weekend are facing delays. There's a five-mile backup heading to the Sagamore Bridge. Traffic getting to the Bourne Bridge has been slow for four miles most of the afternoon. Airline staffing shortages are contributing to 237 flight delays at Logan. The forecast for tomorrow points to some severe weather with strong thunderstorms in the mix. National Weather Service meteorologist Bill Leatham says areas south of Boston will see the worst of it, including the possibility of large hail, gusty winds, and heavy downpours. At least at this point, it's looking mainly um, uh, for like southern parts of the state. I mean, um, right now we're, we're thinking the highest risk area would be from roughly like Hartford to Providence and to Southeast Mass, not to say that it's not out of the question further to the north, but at least at this point, um, it's looking like the risk is higher for for southern areas. Latham says strong to severe thunderstorms are forecast from 2 to 8 p.m. tomorrow before it clears out overnight. A former top state education leader is expressing confidence that Boston's new school superintendent will be able to implement the reforms the state is demanding. Former Massachusetts Secretary of Education Paul Revel says he thinks Mary Skipper will be more effective than the two previous superintendents because she has roots in the community. Skipper worked in Boston schools before heading to the Somerville school system. It's her school system. She's spent the bulk of her career there. The good thing that Mary brings, and one of the things that the search committee was looking for, were were people who not only knew Boston, but were known in Boston. So they had those relationships as a starting point. The Boston Public School District has under two months to create a better system to address parent complaints and to improve special education services. This afternoon, firefighters in Menden had to rescue people stuck on an overhead ride at the Southwick Zoo. Video from several news sites showed people in a string of suspended cars stalled high above the zoo. There's one report that up to 40 people were taken down over ladders. There are no reports of anyone hurt. It's 90 degrees in Boston, a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight and tomorrow. Tomorrow's highs in the low 80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A handful of Democratic governors quickly moved to protect abortion access after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, including our next guest, New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. She and other governors met with President Biden this afternoon to talk about how states can respond to the ruling. 
Governor Luhan Grisham, welcome back to All Things Considered. Well, I'm delighted to be back on the show. Thank you for having me. Your state borders Texas and Oklahoma, which have restricted abortion access. How is New Mexico preparing to become a de facto refuge for people seeking abortion from neighboring states? By signaling and making it clear using the power of the uh, governor's priorities and efforts using the whole of state government to make sure that providers and women and others seeking abortion care know that when I say it's safe, legal and accessible, that we're really focused on access. But do you have the infrastructure? Do you have the staff? Do you have the resources? We do. And that is going to be a question that all of the Democratic governors who are putting up a brick wall and making sure that no one is going to prevent us or knock that wall down for a safe haven. But here's where you can really make a difference. Providers, in addition to resources, are going to be very nervous about these draconian policies that states like Texas are launching into, saying they will criminalize providers and patients. That has the biggest chilling effect on access. So what's the remedy? The remedy is for me, no extraditions, no warrants. We're going to cooperate with the DOJ to protect providers and to protect patients. All of that will be protected, accessible, and be managed by state government here in New Mexico. And that's going to happen in places like New York, Massachusetts. Um, How extraordinary is it for a governor to say, my state will not cooperate with law enforcement from a neighboring state, there will be no extraditions? That's not something I've heard of before. Well, it is not usual, but it is now got to be part of what we're considering in order to protect patient freedoms and patient access. When how extraordinary is it that a state says they're going to prosecute their own residents and their health care providers for providing legal procedures in another state? This is the nuttiest thing and the most draconian, ineffective policies I've ever seen. So you'd say no to those states that I think are pandering to now a very political Supreme Court and a very extreme political base. Let me ask about another step that you and some other governors have suggested, which is to build clinics that would provide abortion on federal land in states that prohibit the procedure. Now, the White House has expressed concern that this could put pregnant people and abortion providers in danger. Would you like to see this happen? Do you think it's a good idea? I think it has to be on the table. You've got many sovereign nations that have clinical space in their own health clinics and health programs. I think the federal government, in addition to protecting right prescription drug access so that Plan B uh, is readily available all across the country using telehealth, that every federal operational aspect in terms of clinical access is considered. And all of the governors, including myself, pushed hard. You need more money in family planning. This is how we preserve access, support providers, and really focus on what we think is coming is more restrictions to contraceptives. You said during the White House meeting that you have been in touch with tribal leaders leaders who are supportive of putting clinics that provide abortions on federal land. Can you tell us about those conversations? Are there people who are encouraging this from from within Native communities? 
There are. And in New Mexico, uh, in fact, there is a strong young women's reproductive rights coalition. Of course, New Mexico really... is a state that wouldn't need it because your state is allowing abortion. But in Oklahoma and Texas. In, uh, that's exactly the point, Ari. If you've got a sovereign nation that says we're interested in being supportive in this space because otherwise they see a pattern of discrimination. If you don't have an accessible provider because so many other women are coming, they're recognizing they could stand up services in a meaningful way. That signals to me that there's likely more support for that in places like Oklahoma, and I think it should be explored by the federal government. Let me ask broadly, the leak of the Supreme Court's opinion in this case gave Democrats almost two months to prepare for the day that Roe would be overturned, and yet the response by the National Party in the last week seems to have been a scramble. There does not seem to be a cohesive message or a plan of action. Why wasn't your party more prepared for this moment? A year ago, we repealed our criminalization statute for abortion, antiquated, unconstitutional in New Mexico, but signal, get rid of it. I think you're seeing states who thought about contraceptives, family planning, school-based health centers. That took two months to marshal those resources, to talk it to the DOJ, to push Congress to be as ready as they can. But when you have a situation where you don't have a constitutional right, legislators, uh, legislatures aren't in session, and too many Democratic governors in the country have Republican legislatures. So you don't have a quick turnaround vehicle. You could have prepared any number of efforts but you don't have the power to execute them. And that is where we are as a country, which is why the work of Democratic governors and this presidential administration are going to be critical to protect all populations who deserve autonomy in reproductive choices. New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, thank you very much. You got it. Thank you, Ari. The lone survivor of Room 111 from the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, is finally home. Teacher Arnie Reyes was welcomed back by a drive-by parade of cars, the smells of home cooking, and family and friends who are working around the clock to care for him. He says that community support is helping him pick up the pieces after he lost 11 of his own students that day. NPR's Claudia Crisales reports. The wind is playing with the chimes outside the green apple-colored home of Arnie Reyes. Inside, family and friends are coming and going. You need to come in, brother. You can come in. Sure. Reyes is resting on his recliner, reminiscing about his first meal back of bean and cheese tacos and what he missed most. Just the scent of my pillows. You know, things you take for granted and you're like, I love the way mom sauteing the onions to make fideo or whatever. It's kind of been like a little bit of a closure for me that I'm home to heal. The fourth grade teacher returned to Uvalde one month to the day of the shooting at Robb Elementary after undergoing 10 surgeries. He was greeted with a car parade in his honor and a constant line of volunteers bringing meals, mowing his lawn and helping him get to appointments. This community has really you know, come together and, and done so much together. It's far and away from where Reyes was on May 24th when a shadowy figure appeared from the back of his classroom after firing shots in the room next door. Reyes had instructed his students to get under their desks and close their eyes, and he was confronted by the gunman who shot him in the left arm. The deaths of the 11 students haunts him. They're my kids. They're my students. They're my kids. They're my children. 
and it's like parents lost one child, families lost one child, but I lost 11 that day. After he was shot, Reyes fell to his stomach and played dead for more than an hour as the shooter sat nearby at his teacher table, at times coughing in response to cops' distant calls to talk to him. Reyes says the shooter splashed water on his back and then blood on the side of his face and then shot him again halfway through the ordeal. I think he just wanted to make sure that everybody was dead. And I think that's why he shot me in the second time on my lower back, because he wanted to make sure. By the time Reyes heard officers come into the room next door, he braced for the end. Soon after, a Border Patrol agent was dragging Reyes by the cuff of his pants, yelling out he was heavy. Reyes' sense of humor breaks through, even in the darkest of times. And I just thought to myself, Dude, I'm still alive. Don't be that mean. Reyes, a former Robb Elementary student himself who is trying to look forward, says he remains haunted by the mistakes exposed that day. His door had a malfunction and would not lock, an issue he asked to get fixed multiple times. And he remains confused at the law enforcement delays. There's really no excuse for, for 77 minutes. He tries to remain tight-lipped about the incident commander, the school district's police chief, Pete Arredondo. Arredondo happens to be his cousin, and they have not talked since the shooting. I wish that he would have said, I'm going to go in there because that's my family. But he didn't. Reyes has also come to see other struggles, such as the outpouring of money that's been donated to possibly rebuild the school. Don't wait for a tragedy to say, okay, well, here's $10 million. Now you can have the best school. Don't wait for the tragedy to happen. Do it now. He's also trying to cope with the reality that he did not save his students. During the parade by his home in his honor, a mother of one of the slain students got out of her car to embrace Reyes. She, she had to come and tell me herself that, no, it was not my fault. I had felt guilty in the sense that, I'm sorry I didn't save her, but I did what I was supposed to do. But I still had that guilty feeling, like, what else could I have done? Reyes says it's refocused him. He's not sure if he'll return to teaching, and he still does not have use of his left arm. So the idea of how his journey ahead works is not fully formed, and it's still a work in progress. I'm here, and a lot of it that, that's getting me forward in all of this is the love that I'm getting from my community, the love that I get from my family, and the thought that I want to make things happen for my students, that they wouldn't die in vain. He says that community love is helping him start to cope with the nightmare of losing all 11 of the students in his classroom that day, students who felt like his own children. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, Uvalde, Texas. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Prouty. It's 518 and ahead on All Things Considered, the Brittany Griner trial has begun in Moscow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA with A Place for Me, celebrating a new generation of artists creating vibrant figurative paintings. ICABoston.org. 
In business news, a new urban arts venture is going up in Nubian Square, the Jazzurbane Cafe, scheduled to open in Roxbury next year. Ron Dorsey is with the Eastern Bank Foundation. He tells the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce that projects like this will help reduce income inequality for people of color. The cafe will spotlight local and national artists who define and celebrate Boston's cultural diversity, and it will be complemented by a full-service culinary program fusing global flavors from local sources. Dorsey predicts Nubian Square development will take off over the next two to five years. On Wall Street, stocks closed up today. The Dow closed up 321 points to end the day at 31,097. The Nasdaq's up 99 points at 11,127. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Live Nation, presenting blues rock musician Joe Bonamassa, live at the Leader Bank Pavilion on Saturday, August 13th. Ticket info at Ticketmaster.com. And Mass TLC, the region's leading technology industry group and the power behind Boston Tech Jam and the Tech Top 50 Awards. More at MassTLC.org. It is 88 degrees in Boston and a chance of some showers and thunderstorms tonight with lows in the low 70s. Tomorrow, showers and thunderstorms likely, highs in the mid-80s. Sunday, highs in the mid-80s, but mostly sunny. And on Monday, the 4th of July, sunshine, highs in the low 80s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. WNBA star Brittany Griner has been detained in Russia for more than four months now on drug charges. Her family, friends, and supporters have been pressing the Biden administration to secure her release. Well, her trial finally began today in Moscow, and NPR's Charles Maines was at the courthouse. Welcome. Hi there. So my understanding is that press access was limited. What did you glean from today's proceedings? Well, you know, we learned a bit more about the charges themselves. The prosecution claims that uh, Russian custom agents found two vape cartridges with a total of just over two-thirds of a gram of hash oil in Griner's backpack and suitcase when she arrived to a Moscow airport last February. They noted it was for personal use, but that Griner had intentionally sought to import these prohibited substances into the Russian Federation. And in fact, the prosecution called two of the customs officials who supposedly inspected Griner as witnesses today. So the trial is really underway. Of course, this comes against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine, antagonistic relations between the U.S. and Russia. How is that impacting the case? Well, you know, the U.S. would say a lot. The U.S. government declared her wrongfully detained in May. The case has since been handed to this U.S. envoy for hostage affairs. And certainly, uh, there's intense public pressure on the Biden administration to do something about it. U.S. officials seem to stress they hear that message loud and clear. Here's the U.S. Embassy's Deputy Chief of Mission, Elizabeth Rood, who attended the trial and spoke afterwards. I can assure you that the United States government, at the very highest levels, is working very hard to bring Ms. Greiner, as well as all wrongfully detained U.S. citizens, safely home. 
that phrase wrongfully detained seems very relevant. Um, do we have any sense of how she herself, Brittany Griner, is doing? Yeah, you know, we saw uh, Griner only briefly. Uh, the press was kept at a distance. She was led by guards, handcuffed and dressed in a Jimi Hendrix T-shirt. The U.S. Embassy's Elizabeth Rood said she had a chance to speak with Griner during the hearing and said she was, quote, in good spirits and keeping up the faith, but given circumstances. That sentiment was also conveyed by Griner's Russian lawyer, Alexander Boykov. She's a bit worried because she has the trial and she has uh, sentencing in the close future, but she's, she's a tough, tough lady. How is Russian media covering this story? It's been huge in the U.S. Are Russians aware of it? Well, they're covering it, but it doesn't have quite the same level of attention that we see in the U.S. Keep in mind that the Kremlin insists Greiner isn't a hostage and that this isn't about politics or geopolitics. The Russian government argues this is just a story of an American, okay, a high-profile American, facing the consequences of carrying illegal substances into Russia. Okay, so the trial is underway. The U.S. says they're doing everything they can to get her out. Any sense of how this is likely to end? Well, you know, it seems clear we'll have to see the trial through, and it'll take a while, too. The hearings pick up again on July 7th. That's next Thursday. But it'll be several rounds of hearings before Griner's defense even gets to make its case. Uh, Meanwhile, there are reports or rumors, whispers, call them what you want, of a possible trade for Griner. And not least because the Biden administration just did a prisoner swap with Russia to free another jailed American, U.S. Marine Trevor Reed, from a Russian prison back in April. You know, Reed's now safely home. Uh, Griner's family and supporters want the same. That's NPR's Charles Maines covering the Brittany Griner trial in Moscow. Thanks a lot. Thank you. For the last several months, this is what the news about inflation has sounded like. Inflation is hitting Americans hard. It's highest levels in four decades. Inflation spiraling out of control. Inflation rose 7.5 percent for the month of January. The latest numbers suggest that inflation may get worse before it gets better. So we wanted to hear what inflation has felt like for people just trying to get by. It was like $10 for a 12-pack of soda the other day. And I'm like, what the heck? There's a lot of anxiety (laughs) that we've accumulated over these past couple months. It really began to hurt us when we realized that everything was going up. I'm loath to sell my Jeep, but I have no other option. I may not have a job to go to. It feels good not having to drive somewhere with the way things are currently going. That was Andrew Pham, Oren Jenkins, Aureli Trujillo, Robert Hart, and Violet Olsek. Unsurprisingly, they've been feeling anxious about how much food prices have gone up in the last year. My name is Robert Hart. I'm a retired veterinarian. I live in Ormond Beach in Florida, and I'm 83 years old. When I go grocery shopping, I certainly look for things that are on sale. Very seldom do we buy any meat. We are turning much more vegetarian. We make our own bread, make our own pasta. My name is Andrew Pham. I'm 28 years old. I'm currently living in Columbia, Missouri. Sometimes I notice that I can't get as much chicken or like beef. I can't get enough of this because like the prices have increased, but I can't really like afford it right now. So I'll sub it in for something else. Oren Jenkins has also had to make substitutions at the grocery store, from where he shops to what he buys. I'm going to stock up on cheap things that are filling, yet somehow healthy, hopefully, 
as opposed to going to a more upscale store, possibly Whole Foods, throwing down a bunch of money for things that are more delicious and better for me, but cost more than twice as much. Last month, Jenkins graduated from law school in Rhode Island. Then he moved to Montana and drove all the way there. The cost of gas coming out of New England through the Midwest, through the flyover states, stayed at a constant $5, if not more. It effectively ate through all of my savings, leaving me with practically nothing. Jenkins isn't alone. Violet Olsik says she's starting to wonder if she should stop working to save on gas. We can afford for me to not work, but it's a lot easier financially if I am working. But if it's going to cost so much money just to fill the car up, to take the kids to childcare so I can work, it might not be worth it anymore. And Aureli Trujillo says she's considering alternatives to driving. I'm actually thinking of taking the train. I'm lucky enough to have that option. My husband doesn't do to his commute and just where we live and where he works. Now, food and gas are things that don't easily come out of a household budget. So people are pinching pennies in other areas, like going to the movies or a restaurant for dinner. For Trujillo, that's meant cutting down on luxuries like an Amazon Prime subscription. I think we also canceled Hulu. We're kind of on the fence on Netflix right now. We're kind of just waiting to see if they increase their prices. And if they do, then that will be our sign to just say no. Trujillo also worries about the lasting effect this could have for her and her family. She'd worked hard to pay off her debt and hoped it would mean a brighter future. With the pandemic and then the economy, the state of the economy, it it feels like whatever work I've done feels like very little of it has mattered because due to the economy and the pandemic, I haven't actually been able to, I don't know, plan anything or do activities that at this stage in life one would think I should be able to do. Voices of Americans reflecting on how rising prices have impacted them. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 529 and coming up on All Things Considered, a major shakeup in college sports. That and much more ahead on All Things Considered. Taking a look at traffic heading to the Cape as the long July 4th holiday weekend gets underway. You'll find a five-mile backup before the Sagamore Bridge. Once over the bridge and on Cape Cod, Route 6 is slow for eight miles. The backup is easing at the Bourne Bridge, but traffic approaching the bridge is slow for three miles. And here's a reminder of business closures for the July 4th holiday on Monday. Federal and state government offices will be closed, along with libraries and banks. Retail stores, liquor stores, and supermarkets will be open. In Chicago, the Red Sox are losing to the Cubs 6-5 to five in the eighth inning. It's 88 degrees in Boston, some showers and thunderstorms possible tonight. Tomorrow, a likelihood of showers and thunderstorms and highs in the mid-80s. This is WBUR. Women were never in court themselves. It was as if we were irrelevant. 
And that was why I wanted to bring a lawsuit where, first of all, it would be people going to court and saying, my rights are violated, this is wrong, and this is why. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. One week after the Supreme Court overturned the constitutional right to an abortion, President Biden met with a group of Democratic governors today in an effort to consider ways to protect access to abortions. The president is calling on voters to turn out in force ahead of the midterm election, saying if Republicans make gains in Congress this November, things could get worse. I predict if we don't, if we don't, Take this, keep the Senate, increase it in the House, we're going to be in a situation where the Republicans are going to pass a nationwide prohibition consistent with what the Supreme Court ruled. Several governors asked Biden to consider using federal VA and military hospitals to help provide more care, something the White House has previously ruled out. Biden says if Democrats make gains in the November elections, they can seek to protect abortion rights through Congress and federal law. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange has sought permission at the High Court in London to appeal his extradition to the U.S., where he faces dozens of charges, including spying. From London, Villa Marx reports. Britain's most senior law enforcement official, Priti Patel, ruled last month there was no lawful reason Assange could not be extradited to the U.S. to stand trial after the U.K. Supreme Court confirmed his extradition should proceed. Assange, an Australian citizen, had until Friday to appeal Patel's ruling to London's High Court after a years-long legal tussle that stems from the publication more than a decade ago of leaked US military and diplomatic documents tied to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's been housed in Belmarsh Prison since the government of Ecuador withdrew his asylum status several years ago, allowing British police to take him from the country's London embassy. US prosecutors want him on 18 separate charges, including one of spying. His lawyers say he could face a prison sentence of up to 175 years. For NPR News, I'm Villa Marks in London. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street as we head into a long holiday week. Weekend. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Just as the long July 4th holiday weekend gets underway, here's what drivers heading to the Cape are in for this afternoon. There's a five-mile backup before the Sagamore Bridge. Once over the bridge and on Cape Cod Route 6 is slow for eight miles. The backup is easing at the Bourne Bridge, but traffic approaching the bridge is slow for three miles. Several fare changes on the MBTA took effect today. T riders now can make a second transfer between buses and subways without paying extra. The T is also reducing the cost of an unlimited one-day link pass to $1.75. The seven-day link pass for passengers who qualify for reduced fares is now $10. Massachusetts is extending food assistance through the summer to 500,000 low-income kids. The Baker administration says it has federal approval to continue a child nutrition program that started in response to the pandemic. Children who qualify for a free or reduced price meal at school or children whose families receive SNAP benefits will get nearly $400 for food starting this month. This comes a day after the final day of a different federal pandemic measure that provided free meals to students. 
Boston Public Schools have under two months to implement reforms the state is demanding. The district will have an interim leader over the summer, while new school superintendent Mary Skipper wraps up work as the leader of Somerville Schools. Ruby Reyes with the community education group Boston Education Justice Alliance says Boston schools need knowledgeable staff to help with special education. Families are just so desperate for services and needs. And there's been so much turnover in central office staffing around actually knowing supports and resources for families. In addition to improving special education, the state is calling for a safety audit and a review of school bathrooms. Construction on protected bike lanes in Cambridge can move forward while a lawsuit challenging the project plays out in court. Today, a judge rejected a request from a group of business owners and residents to pause the construction. The group has filed suit against the project, arguing the associated loss of parking spaces will reduce business and will force delivery trucks into tight residential side streets. The project will build 25 miles of bike lanes through the city by the end of the decade. In sports, at Wrigley Field in the eighth inning, the Red Sox trail the Cubs 6-5. to five. It's 88 degrees in Boston, a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight. Tomorrow, a chance of showers and thunderstorms and highs in the mid-80s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Some recent Supreme Court rulings have added momentum to a fringe movement called Christian nationalism. There's concern now that this extreme ideology is gaining legal legitimacy through the country's highest court. NPR's domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef joins us. Hi there. Hey, Ari. Begin by explaining what Christian nationalism is. What do its followers believe? Well, I got a really good explanation of this, Ari, from Samuel Perry. Um, He's a professor at the University of Oklahoma, and he was talking to me specifically about the court's decision to overturn Roe and the people who were celebrating it. You don't have to be a Christian nationalist to want to outlaw abortion, but the vast majority of Americans who want to outlaw abortion fall on that scale of of Christian nationalism. They believe that bringing about the kingdom of God requires uh, institutionalizing biblical principles as the law. They they want to declare the United States a Christian nation. They want to institute Christian values as a part of our national policy. So Ari, in addition to the overturning of Roe, Perry says this segment of the population was also celebrating the recent ruling on behalf of a public school football coach who was leading students in Christian prayer and another Supreme Court decision to allow public funding for private religious schools. So in the introduction, we described Christian nationalism as a fringe movement, as an extreme ideology. Put that into context for us. So it is an anti-democratic ideology. You know, when researchers talk about Christian nationalism, they're specifically talking about white Christian nationalism, Ari. You know, people who seek to return to the days when white Christians held privilege in America. Um, And to add to this, 
Um, the ideology revolves around a, a persecution narrative. It posits that white Christians are the victims of increased secularization. So Christian nationalists often rally under a call for religious freedom or religious liberty, but Perry's research finds that they're actually not supportive of increased expression of other faiths in American life. They're only interested in privileging Western white Christianity and a very conservative understanding of Christianity at that. Um, it's true that fewer and fewer Americans support Christian nationalism, but Perry says this has made Christian nationalists more militant, and we saw that on January 6th. What role did Christian nationalists play in the January 6th insurrection? You'll recall, Ari, you know, in and among the imagery you saw from the violence that day, um, there was also imagery of people with Christian symbols, clothes, and signs invoking God and Jesus. And we saw prayer groups. You know, there was a subset of Americans there who conflate patriotism with Christianity. And data show that the ideology is linked to violence when political differences are framed as spiritual battles between good and evil, because that provides a kind of justification for violence. You said that Christian nationalists are celebrating some recent Supreme Court rulings. Is there any evidence that the justices themselves are influenced by this ideology? We don't know if they've been influenced by this thought. Um, but what we do know, Ari, is that the positions they've taken recently, especially on abortion, are out of step with the majority of Americans. And we also know that extremists are intentional about expanding the window of ideas that are considered politically acceptable. Um, John Finn is a former professor of government who's studied extremist challenges to the Constitution. The idea that these extreme right-wing philosophies are inconsequential or unimportant because nobody believes them ignores the fact that over time um, they help shift the window. They become part of mainstream political thinking or mainstream in this case, judicial thinking. And Finn notes, Ari, that, you know, some people might point and say that the Supreme Court has in the past made rulings that were to the left of American consensus. But he says those decisions generally favored an expansion of rights, whether it was for women to vote or for same-sex couples to marry. With this recent set of decisions, he says the majority on the court seem to be comfortable with a future in which some Americans are stripped of rights. NPR's Odette Youssef, thank you. My pleasure. On your way out of town for the holiday weekend? Well, you probably already know you're not alone. Tens of millions of Americans are traveling, some for the first time since the pandemic began. And that means a lot of traffic, long lines at airports, and flight delays. NPR's David Shaper reports from Chicago. At this gas station just outside of Chicago off of Interstate 94, a steady stream of drivers pulls in to fill their tanks. But not necessarily because they're heading out of town this weekend. Uh, definitely not. It's just too expensive. I did think about visiting my cousin in Ohio. And of course, I was going to drive there. Uh, but uh, as you can see, that says $100. And this is a sedan. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. 31-year-old Justin Wilson of Chicago says he's just going to hang around town this weekend. As for 56-year-old Lisa Aguilos' plans? Nothing. We're just going to stay home because... See how much I'm paying? How much is it? $86 for 12.5 gallons. We'll be staying home, cook something, barbecue something, and that's it. But tens of millions of other Americans are hitting the road for the weekend, despite the high gas prices. We're looking at about 48 million people who are going to travel, which is almost uh, up to pre-pandemic numbers. 
Andrew Gross of AAA says a record 42 million of them are driving. We were certainly surprised because given all these high gas prices, you would think that, uh, you know, setting a record this year for the number of people going by car wouldn't be happening. And yet it is. Gross says there is just so much pent up demand to get away and be outdoors that people are willing to pay the high price of gas, which for regular unleaded is averaging 484 a gallon right now. And with that record number of people driving this weekend, Traffic congestion is going to be uh, pretty significant, uh, you know, throughout this evening. Bob Pishu is with the data analytics firm Enrix, which analyzes traffic patterns. And he says this afternoon and this evening may be the worst of it, but travelers can expect heavy congestion at times into next week. And if you think the roads are going to be bad, airports might be worse. This weekend could be a rough ride, especially if we have bad weather and uh, that ripple effect from, you know, storms and things. Joe Sweeterman is a transportation professor at DePaul University and is tracking the rising number of people flying this summer and the airline's troubles in meeting that demand as they've canceled and delayed tens of thousands of flights in recent weeks. He cites a combination of issues, including a shortage of pilots and air traffic controllers. Yeah, the airlines have... Uh... I think been overly optimistic about their staff situation. And now you throw in uh, what appears to be some pretty significant traffic control uh, issues, uh, you know, with the, the peaking of demand this weekend. And it's sort of a, a perfect storm in some ways. I think everybody we're back traveling now and they're ill prepared, totally ill prepared for what's going on now. At Atlanta's Hartsfield Airport, 66 year old Sharon Williams is hoping to return home to Milwaukee on Delta but she's expecting delays because she's had a lot of them recently, and she blames the airline. They got to get better with this. They got to do better. Delta took the unusual step of giving passengers a waiver to change flights ahead of the weekend for no charge. Delta and American have had the most delays and cancellations in recent weeks, but other airlines have had significant problems too. And Europe's airports have also been plagued by chaos. Experts say there's no quick fix. One analyst says we expect it to be a long, tiresome summer for everyone. David Shaper, NPR News, Chicago. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Another seismic shakeup has once again changed the look of big-time college sports. Yesterday, the Big Ten gave the OK for UCLA and the University of Southern California to join that conference. So starting in 2024, the two Pac-12 schools will be a part of a conference that's grounded in the Midwest and stretches to the East Coast. Joining me now is NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman. Hey, Tom. Hi, Juana. So I guess the first question I have for you here is, why would these two Pac-12 stalwarts bolt for the Big Ten? I assume you won't be surprised if I tell you money. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Pat Forty of Sports Illustrated said it well, and I'm quoting here, added revenue drives every decision in modern college sports now, regardless of the damage done to things like tradition, geographic sense, the student-athlete experience, and any semblance of collegiality. Now, UCLA and USC are leaving a Pac-12 conference that's lost some relevance in recent years, and they're joining a true power conference in the Big Ten, which is negotiating what's expected to be a 
huge new TV contract, and now UCLA and USC can partake in the riches. We also should point out money is particularly important after sizable losses to universities and athletic departments because of the uh, pandemic. I assume then that this move also brings some benefits for the Big Ten, right? Oh, it sure does. Uh, The Big Ten now can take advantage of the country's second largest TV market in Los Angeles. Recruiting athletes from that region will be easier. There are lots of rich Southern California boosters and donors and business owners, which can make for a very fertile ground for name, image, and likeness deals for athletes now in the Big Ten. And beyond football and basketball, the California schools bring excellence in so-called minor sports, including Olympic sports, to the Big Ten. It also keeps the Big Ten right up there with the Southeastern Conference, the other super conference uh, that last year added Texas and Oklahoma from the Big 12. In fact, the UCLA-USC move really is an answer to that. Okay, so what about the Pac-12? What does this do to the conference that's kind of being left behind here? Yeah, you know, you hear some talking about a death knell for the conference. It weakens it. It makes it less attractive to TV networks, which is where the big money comes from. And the Pac-12 may continue to splinter. Some of the schools left behind may be absorbed by the Big Ten or some other conference. Also, suddenly the Rose Bowl, called the granddaddy of them all, what will happen to that famous football bowl game, the traditional New Year's Day matchup in Pasadena of the Big Ten and Pac-12, with the Pac-12 now devalued. Will the Rose Bowl's reputation take a major hit? All right, Tom, let's go back to that quote you read about how this defection by UCLA and USC damages Mm -hmm. regional rivalries, as well as the student-athlete experience. How does it do that? Well, UCLA and USC developed those regional conference rivalries over decades. USC first played Stanford in football in 1905. UCLA first met Cal Berkeley in 1933. Now, no more, or at least it's going to happen rarely. And the Southern California schools will be flying cross country and back for conference games, uh, which gets to the impact on athletes. Don't underestimate the toll from lots of jet lag, the potential impact on scholastics, remember, Number one of the NCAA likes to call them student athletes. <laughs> also, with so much more money in play now in these two super conferences, the SEC and Big Ten, athletes and revenue generating sports might demand more than the name, image, and likeness deals that began a year ago. Certainly seems they have the right to do that, which could inch us closer to professionalizing college sport. NPR Sports correspondent Tom Goldman, thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 548 and coming up on All Things Considered, Hong Kong is getting a new leader with strong backing from Beijing, but faces challenges with a sluggish economy that remains closed to the outside world by COVID controls. Also, remembering a music fan. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com careers. It is 88 degrees in Boston tonight. A chance of some showers and thunderstorms and lows in the low 70s. Tomorrow, showers and thunderstorms likely. Highs reaching the mid-80s. Highs in the mid-80s on Sunday, but mostly sunny on Sunday. And looking ahead to Monday for the 4th of July, 
Sunshine, highs in the low 80s. If you take pride in following local news, then here's a challenge. Take our Boston News Quiz. Go to WBUR.org slash quiz. On last week's Wait, Wait, Helen Hong's romance with the fossil fuel industry came to a sad end. Wait, are you saying that ExxonMobil does not have my best interest at heart? <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. Listen, we really have to have a talk, and we will, this week in front of a live audience in Philadelphia. That's the News Quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Hong Kong has a new chief executive. John Lee is a former cop who got the job with the full endorsement of the Chinese leadership. Beijing sees him as loyal and a safe pair of hands who has overseen a crackdown on dissent in the former British colony. But as NPR's John Ruich reports, even with that backing, Lee faces challenges and none perhaps more immediate than the economy. About a mile and a half from the border with China is a town on the Hong Kong side called Shengshui. Wen Jikfeng has worked in a restaurant in town for more than two decades. This street used to be crowded. There were at least three to four times more people than there are now. We had to be careful when walking. Wen has never seen things quite this anemic. So that place is closed, the place next to them is closed, that place is closed. What were these businesses? He says they were drugstores that sold things like cosmetics and baby formula to traders from the mainland, mostly. They used to flock here daily to buy goods to sell back in China. But the border has been effectively closed since the earliest days of the pandemic. The border trading is dead, businesses have gone bust, rents have collapsed. Xiongshui is just a tiny piece of Hong Kong's economy. But economics professor Thomas Yun of Shuiyuan University says it highlights a big problem. Hong Kong is an international city below that. We need to get the border open. Since Britain seized Hong Kong in the mid-1800s and made it a global city, it's always been dependent on the world beyond its borders. But that came to a crashing halt in 2020, and its economy is sputtering. Sandwiched between China, which aims to keep COVID-19 out, and the rest of the world, which is learning to live with the virus, Hong Kong has been stuck. If we follow all the policy in mainland China in controlling the COVID, of course, we can get the border from China open, but it will take a lot of time. It's been more than two years already, and it's meant the city has not been able to fully open to the rest of the world. The last two years have really taken a huge toll on families, um, and the frustration is immense. Frederick Golub is head of the European Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong. He says the policies also create uncertainty and hurt businesses. Outgoing chief executive Carrie Lam said in recent weeks there isn't much hope for a swift opening with the mainland. And I think that puts pressure on John Lee to actually prioritize easing restrictions for travelers coming from from the rest of the world. As the business pressure is not only mounting, it's, it's, it's simply gigantic. But that may be impossible for a man who needs to show loyalty to Beijing. In the meantime, many people are voting with their feet. Some are even quietly reconsidering the city's long-term allure as a regional business hub. The closed border is an immediate factor, but the backdrop includes political unrest and China's increasingly heavy hand in Hong Kong's affairs, including a 2020 national security law. Beijing says it's helped restore stability. Critics fear, though, that Hong Kong's vaunted fundamentals like freedom of speech and rule of law are vanishing. Back in Xiongshui, 37-year-old Tracy Lung's story is emblematic of the challenges people are facing. 
She used to run a beauty salon, but it was forced to close early in the pandemic. Now she sells dime store household goods out of a storefront where a pharmacy used to be. The rent is cheap now, yeah. The items were originally bound for Europe, but couldn't ship out because of the pandemic. While she's glad some things have worked out in her favor, she says this is not how she dreamt of making a living. I'm thinking about other options, of course. Yeah, because I don't think I can do this um, for the rest of my life. <laughs> but for now, she says she does not feel comfortable starting a new business. The future is too uncertain. Because the government is like a, like a mess. Yeah, Hong Kong government is a mess, actually. A mess that it's now down to John Lee to address. John Ruich, NPR News, Hong Kong. More than a million people have died from COVID-19 in the U.S. so far. NPR continues to remember them through the music they loved in our series called Songs of Remembrance. And today we remember Gerald Thomas, known as Jerry, with a little Elvis Presley. He died on December 8th of last year at the age of 80. Gerald Thomas's niece, Alita Lozano, says everyone always looked forward to spending time with Uncle Jerry. So this one time they were able to go to Hawaii on a family vacation, him, my tia Elia, and my cousin George. And it was like the one big vacation that they took, right? And so it, he felt so happy. He's like, I felt like Elvis in Hawaii. <laughs> Wise men say only fools rush in. I have so many memories from hanging out with my Uncle Jerry. When we would go over and he would have Elvis Presley playing on the radio and we would like dance and he would love uh, listening always to music also. So I think he also helped me have that love for music because it was always a great time with him. You know, even though it wasn't, we weren't celebrating anything special. I felt like there was always music in the background that made it happy and warming and inviting. Falling in I was born in Mexico, and I was, when I arrived here, I was um, two years old. Spanish was the language at home, and so when I went to school, I only spoke Spanish. And um, I felt really out of place, and I think my Uncle Jerry was the one who helped me kind of feel like there was a part of me that, that belonged here. Shall I stay? Would it be? I was the very first one in my whole family to go to school. So personally, I feel like he was the one that helped me go on to college and, you know, said, you can do it. You don't speak perfect English now, but you'll, you know, go to school, you'll learn it. And, you know, you're just as smart as everybody else. Like a river flows, surely to the sea. In November, when we lost, last saw him and, and he said he was feeling sick and we said, well, you know, you should really consider getting vaccinated. And he was like, no, no, you know, that's just made believe like we are not going to let them put anything in our bodies and that kind of stuff. My uncle Jerry went to the hospital. They told him it's COVID, you know, and then he went into a coma. Um, things started to get complicated. They had to amputate his leg to try to save him. And I think it was like the day after that surgery that he passed away. For us. 
know, he thought he was never going to have children. And then he had just the largest family that loved him. And um, these members that we lost because of COVID, it's, they're not just members. They're really going to leave it like a, a big empty hole in this world. Hawaiian sunset. Gerald Thomas of Paris, California, was 80 years old. Smiles and says hello. Have a great weekend and thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. And from the Nature Conservancy, Partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Learn more at nature.org. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Sharon Brody. It's coming up on 6 o'clock as All Things Considered continues. This afternoon in Chicago... The Red Sox lost to the Cubs 6-5. to It is 88 degrees in Boston. Tonight, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms and lows in the low 70s. Some showers and thunderstorms likely tomorrow. Saturday's highs in the mid-80s. Sunday, mostly sunny and highs in the mid-80s. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden met today with a group of Democratic governors to discuss how to protect abortion rights after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. It's Friday, July 1st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. This week, the Supreme Court curbed the EPA's authority to set carbon emission limits on existing power plants. The head of the agency says the ruling is disappointing. It is a setback, but it does not take EPA out of the game. Also, the doctor who serves as the lead health officer of the Portland metro area offers lessons learned from last year's heat wave. Plus, the conversation turns to the supernatural drama Stranger Things. The Netflix hit is dropping two final episodes in its fourth season today. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden has met with a group of Democratic governors to brainstorm ideas about how to move forward in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Biden is facing increasing pressure to respond more forcefully to the ruling that eliminates the constitutional right to an abortion. President Biden says the federal government will take immediate steps to protect women in states where abortion is banned or severely restricted. If extremist governors try to block a woman from traveling from her state that prohibits her from seeking medical help she needs,
to a state that provides that care, the federal government will act to protect her bedrock rights through the attorney general's office. Biden says the administration is looking at all alternatives to counter the Supreme Court's decision. The president also renewed his push to make abortion an election issue this November, warning that a Republican-controlled Congress would try to pass a national ban on the procedure. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Washington. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell is threatening to derail a bill designed to boost semiconductor manufacturing in the U.S. That's if Democrats move forwards toward restarting their stalled package of energy and economic initiatives. The possible rejuvenation of the reconciliation package remains a work in progress and is far from certain. Where McConnell seems worried enough, he's decided to make the announcement before members break for their August recess. The White House, for its part, accuses McConnell of holding hostage a bipartisan package that would lower the cost of countless products that rely on semiconductors. More information is being released on the shooting of multiple law enforcement officers in eastern Kentucky that left two deputies dead and more wounded. Member station WEKU's Stan Ingold has more. Floyd County Sheriff John Hunt spoke to reporters after the accused gunman appeared in court. He said deputies were at the scene Thursday to investigate a domestic dispute. Hunt says it appears the shooter had a plan in place. When they arrived, uh, they had no chance. Uh, this guy had a, uh, seemed to be a, a plan, and uh, he pretty much executed that plan almost to precision. And uh, thank God we were uh, at least able to, some survive that did. Hunt says along with those killed and wounded by the shooter, a deputy is being treated for carbon monoxide poisoning after taking shelter under a car during the standoff. For NPR News. I'm Stan Ingold in Richmond, Kentucky. AAA is out with its annual holiday travel forecast, saying it anticipates that 47.9 million Americans will travel at least 50 miles or more from home over the long holiday weekend. That's despite flight cancellations and delays at airports and gas prices near $5 a gallon. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today. The Dow is up 321 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. People driving to Cape Cod this evening to start the long weekend are facing some improvements over earlier today. The backups to the Sagamore and Bourne bridges are shorter than they were most of the afternoon. The backups are three miles approaching both bridges. But over the Sagamore on Route 6, it's slow through Sandwich. If you're heading out for that weekend barbecue tomorrow, might not be ideal for outdoor activities. Forecasters say Massachusetts could experience some severe thunderstorms tomorrow afternoon. National Weather Service meteorologist Bill Latham says the storm will have the biggest impact between 2 and 8 p.m. Kind of what we tell folks, um, especially if they're heading outdoors, is to, you know, have an eye on the sky and, and also have a way to receive weather information just because, you know, there'll be the risk for showers and thunderstorms. Again, there could be some strong to severe with some gusty winds and large, large hails, but possible too. Latham says the storm moves out by tomorrow night and the rest of the July 4th holiday weekend offers mostly sunny skies. The city of Boston is predicting up to 2 million people will visit during the July 4th weekend. Harbor Fest is getting underway. It's a celebration of Boston's history. Mayor Michelle Wu says this is a great opportunity for people to rediscover the city after two years of pandemic restrictions. The ability to see everyone together in person and welcome visitors from all around the world will be a huge boost for our economy and, and for our local businesses who continue to, to try to put the pieces back together. Monday night on the Esplanade, the Boston Pops holds its traditional July 4th concert along with fireworks.
A former state senator who's running for Congress is facing charges that he stole a gun from an elderly constituent and then misled investigators looking into the situation. The state attorney general's office announced today that Dean Tran, a Republican from Fitchburg, was indicted for allegedly using his position as a public official to intimidate the constituent into giving up the firearms of her late husband. Tran's also charged with forcing his way into the constituent's home. Tran has denied the charges. He's running against Democratic Congresswoman Lori Trahan in the 3rd District. Firefighters in Mendon think a hydraulic problem caused an overhead ride to malfunction at the Southwicks Zoo in Mendon. Nineteen people were stuck in a string of cars just before 3 p.m. today. No one was injured. In sports this afternoon in Chicago, the Red Sox lost to the Cubs 6-5. It is 88 degrees in Boston. A chance of some showers and thunderstorms tonight and tomorrow. Showers and thunderstorms likely highs in the mid-80s. Sunday mostly sunny, highs in the mid-80s. Monday, the 4th of July, sunny, highs in the low 80s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The Supreme Court has ruled that the Environmental Protection Agency does not have the authority to set limits on carbon emissions from existing power plants. Experts worry that this could curb the government's ability to fight climate change. President Biden called the decision devastating and vowed to continue tackling the climate crisis. EPA Administrator Michael Regan joins us now to talk about what all of this could mean for his agency. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. So to start, how big of a setback is this ruling to the administration's climate change agenda? You know, it's uh, deeply disappointing to see what the Supreme Court is doing in this ruling. And it is a setback, but it does not take EPA out of the game. Uh, While there are constraints and we're still reviewing this ruling, uh, the apparent constraints don't prevent EPA from regulating climate pollution. And so we're going to move forward with every legal authority to regulate climate pollution and protect communities uh, that we have. You've pointed out the urgency of this issue, and the Biden administration came into office with the most ambitious climate agenda of any president. There was the pledge to cut U.S. greenhouse gas emissions in half by the end of this decade. How challenging does this ruling make meeting that target? You know, climate action presents an unmatched opportunity to ensure global competitiveness, create jobs, lower costs for families, and protect people's health, especially those who've long suffered. And so Uh, We are, you know, optimistic that we can continue to move forward to do all of these things because the technology is available, the market signals are there. And, you know, as a government administration, we want to provide those rules of the road so that industry has the right certainty to make these longer term investments. If the Biden administration cannot meet its target as it relates to greenhouse gas emissions, Could that have ripple effects on the rest of the world's ability to fight the effects of climate change? Well, you know, as I travel internationally and talk to my colleagues around the globe, we talk about the work that we've already done. We, over the past uh, 18 months or so, have done a really good job of focusing on the full suite of climate pollutants. Power plants 
play a significant role in this larger picture. And that's why uh, the Supreme Court's ruling is disappointing because it's slowing down the momentum of not only curtailing climate change impacts, but the globally competitive aspects that this country can seize to create jobs and grow economic opportunities. And so I remain optimistic. This administration remains optimistic. By the way, it's not just EPA. Uh, The president's vision has the entire government working together, hand in hand. Give us an example of what that whole of government approach looks like. I've heard that cited a number of times by others in the administration as well. What does that look like? You know, it it looks like the conversations that I'm having with uh, Secretary Tom Vilsack in agriculture to think about innovative agricultural practices that can uh, curtail carbon emissions. It looks like the type of partnership that I have with Secretary Jennifer Granholm as we think about the technological solutions of the future, the research and development dollars that the Department of Energy has to invest in advanced technologies are married going hand in hand so that we can get these things at a commercial scale sooner rather than later. Uh, The conversations I'm having with Marty Walsh about the job opportunities, the union opportunities, and how we can grow jobs in the economy. There's an all-of-government approach here. And I think uh, as an administrator, I am working with all of my colleagues to leverage all of those opportunities. We've talked a good deal about the Supreme Court ruling, but I want to broaden out a bit now and talk about Congress. It seems that this ruling puts a good deal more pressure on reaching some sort of a deal on a climate bill on Capitol Hill. And Congress, so far as you know well, has failed to act in any significant way on climate change. How critical is passing a climate bill legislatively to this administration meeting its goals? You know, it's an important piece if we want to keep pace with tackling the climate crisis at the rate that we know we need to and the science tells us. Uh, But, you know, I've said this from day one, the president has a number of tools in his toolbox And EPA has been using those tools from day one uh, while the administration engages with Congress. We're not going to wait. We can't wait. And the administration will continue to work with Congress, and hopefully we'll see Congress act. And lastly, I'm curious, as you assess and continue to assess the impact of this ruling, what message does this send to the American people about the environmental priorities in this country? And I wonder if you worry about further rulings that could come from the court next term that could impede your ability to address what you've described as an urgent crisis. We'll continue to keep our eye on the court uh, and we'll continue to think through how we work and power through uh, some of these setbacks. We have no other option. We have to continue to move forward. I think it sends a message that uh, every single American in this country has a voice and their voices need to be heard. And if their voices are heard, then we'll begin to see more of the types of actions that, uh, that Americans want to see. I think when you look at the polling, uh, you know, most Americans agree that climate change is real and needs to be addressed. Uh, most Americans understand that there are environmental and health impacts from climate change. And so most Americans want us to move forward. Rulings like yesterday prevent us from moving forward as quickly as we would like. So Americans should use their voices as much as possible to ensure that we can move forward and do the things that the American people would like for us to do. That was Michael Regan. He's the administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. 
President Biden is looking for actions his administration can take to protect abortion rights now that the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade. He says Democrats need more seats in Congress to try to enshrine access to abortion into law. Today, he also warned that he thinks restrictions on abortions could increase if his party loses its narrow majority. If we don't take this, keep the Senate, increase it in the House, we're going to be in a situation where the Republicans are going to pass a nationwide prohibition consistent with what the Supreme Court ruled. Today, he met with Democratic governors from nine states about what they are doing. NPR's Barbara Sprunt is covering the story from the White House. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Ari. Tell us more about the meeting. What did the president want to talk about? Well, yesterday, President Biden said he would have announcements today about steps he'll take to protect abortion rights. But really, this was essentially a virtual listening session with governors. He didn't have any new steps to announce today. Reporters were in the room for the start of it. And what we heard was governors explaining what the situation is like in their states. And we heard the president asking them for more ideas. We're going to hear from one of those governors in another part of the program. Um, What sorts of ideas did they offer him? Well, one thing that they urged was to make use of federal and tribal land in states where abortion has been banned, facilities like military hospitals. And that's interesting that they're still asking for that because we had heard earlier this week from the White House that the idea of using federal lands has been ruled out. Uh, The governors acknowledged the realities of the situation. They're supportive of abortion rights. And so it's going to be up to them to provide those services for people. And one of those governors was uh, New York's Kathy Hochul, and she talked about the financial burden faced by states who will continue to provide abortion like hers. The rights of millions of women across this country are now falling on the shoulders of just a handful of states. Just a handful of states are now going to have to take care of the health care of women from other states. And Biden also talked with uh, North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper. He said his state has already seen an influx of patients coming in for abortion services. Uh, He said one provider has scheduled almost 200 patients from out of state just next week. And if you map that out, that's about 10,000 extra patients coming next year from states that have tight restrictions in place. Uh, But Biden didn't really indicate what kind of extra help is coming for these states. The president has been having a lot of these kinds of meetings, uh, some even before the Supreme Court ruled in this Mm -hmm. case. What are advocates from around the country telling the Biden administration? Yeah, there have been dozens of these kinds of meetings at various levels. Uh, I spoke with Lupe Rodriguez. Uh, She's with the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice. She's in California. She's met with the White House in the last few months for these kinds of conversations. And she told me that she's looking to see action on travel vouchers for women who don't have the money to fly or take a train to another state to get abortion care. And she said that's one concrete action that can be taken, but there's a lot more resources that are going to be needed, even in states that do have protections in place for abortion. Part of the conversation needs to be what resources are being given to states that that will have abortion access so that they can uh, support the influx of people and support the people in their own state who, who need care. So places like California and New York that have protections in place, the people in those states presumably will continue to seek abortion care at the rates they were before this decision came down. And so now these clinics and providers have to take into account that there's just going to be a lot more people coming from out of state. 
after the Supreme Court ruled, you spoke with abortion rights supporters who had gone to the court who were frustrated with Democrats and the president for not doing more. How is the White House responding to that criticism? That's right. I've spoken to voters and advocates who say that they feel, I mean, frankly, abandoned by the White House. People who've told me that they've seen the statements, they've seen the speeches and the interviews, but they want to see President Biden and Vice President Harris out there meeting with women and providers at abortion clinics. Biden has been overseas since the decision was handed down. Uh, And the White House is pointing out that this meeting was the first thing he did when he got back. Uh, He says he wants to make this a case that this is an election issue. So to do that, we'll probably see more of these kinds of conversations in the weeks to come. That's NPR's Barbara Sprunt reporting from the White House. Thank you. Thank you. Kids today are dealing with so much. The world that my generation is inheriting isn't a pleasant one. Someone wrote queer on the back windshield. I didn't really fit in with any particular groups. And their mental health is suffering. Come back Monday to All Things Considered for concrete advice to help the young people in your life shoulder the weight of the world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 618 and coming up on All Things Considered, the Stranger Things Season 4 finale. On Wall Street today, stocks closed up. The Dow closed up 321 points to end the day at 31,097. NASDAQ up 99 points at 11,127. The S&P 500 closed up 39 points, ending at 38.25. Marketplace has a full range of business news at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for helping make them the nation's number one children's hospital nine years in a row. bostonchildrens.org slash answers. And Red's Best, with local home delivery and pickup at the Boston Fish Pier. Direct access to fish, shellfish, and sushi from networked fishermen. Red'sBest.com. Stay informed about a full range of developments in the news. Go to WBUR.org or tell your smart speaker to play WBUR. Here's a holiday note. Law enforcement in Massachusetts is reminding residents getting ready for the 4th of July private fireworks are illegal in the state. State police say they've already issued summonses to more than 30 people who purchased fireworks out of state and brought them into Massachusetts. State records indicate nearly 1,000 fires and explosions have been linked to fireworks over the past 10 years. In sports this afternoon at Wrigley Field, the Red Sox lost to the Cubs 6-5. It is 84 degrees in Boston with a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight and showers and thunderstorms likely tomorrow. Highs in the mid-80s. Sunday mostly sunny. Highs in the mid-80s. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. As summer officially arrived last week, a heat wave broke records all over the U.S. This is more than just uncomfortable. In the U.S., heat kills more people than any other type of extreme weather. Portland, Oregon knows that well. 
Last year, almost 70 people in the Portland metro area died in a June heat wave. These were people who were found alone with no fan, no air conditioning, many of them older with underlying conditions. That's Dr. Jennifer Vines, who I spoke with a year ago as temperatures hit 110 degrees in Portland. She helped oversee the response to that disaster as the Portland metro area's lead health officer. And we called her up again to hear the lessons learned for this season. So this is just the beginning of the summer, and already temperatures are breaking records across the country. What are you in Portland doing right now to prepare for the next three months? We're mobilizing right now the most important part of any heat response, which is communication. And so putting in really structured outreach, making sure people know that the forecast is coming, make sure that they have options for uh, what to do to stay cool and to stay well. Like what? What's your message to them? Right. So our message is making sure people are paying attention to forecasted hot weather and that they have a plan for how they're going to stay cool, uh, whether that's uh, teaming up with family members, friends, common rooms in apartment buildings, uh, that they know where they can go to give their bodies a break from the heat. One consequence of climate change is that extreme heat is arriving in places that historically have not experienced it. I mean, when I grew up in Portland, summers were temperate and only about a third of homes in the city have air conditioning. So as you look across the country at this growing trend, do you have specific advice for communities that have not dealt with extreme heat in the past? Yeah, I think what I would say to those communities is assume that it can happen, assume that it will happen. And again, the the foundation is really around communication. So alerting your constituents to the dangers and really having resources for people to know where they can get to stay cool. I know there's a lot of focus in my jurisdiction about cooling shelters and places where people can go to get out of the heat, whether it's libraries, malls, movie theaters, preparing ahead of time for where to direct people to get cool should you have a heat wave is by far the most important thing. Uh, Yeah, I'm wondering about when a heat crisis strikes, whether people even know to call 911. Like you can see floodwaters rising in your house. You can tell when a tornado is coming. But heat sneaks up on you. Heat can sneak up on you. And we know from other disastrous heat waves that after about two days is when people really, uh, when their bodies actually start to fail. And one of the most important components of a heat wave is actually the overnight cooling, because that's what gives our bodies a rest. Uh, And unfortunately, we're looking at uh, not only daytime highs, but the level of nighttime cooling when a heat wave happens, because earlier in the summer, we've had less of a chance for our bodies to adapt to heat but it can overtake people in ways unexpected. It can happen quickly. It can also happen again after a a couple of days of just really a a lot of heat stress on the body just from sitting at home. Beyond the importance of communication, are there other lessons that Portland learned from that deadly heat wave last year that you think will be useful as the rest of the country experiences similar things this summer? We did actually. Uh, we learned that uh, for, for cooling shelters, when those do have a role, having a smaller settings, more dispersed uh, geographically, are uh, more welcoming to people and there's less uh, less conflict in bringing lots of people together if it's a smaller setting. Uh, a larger also- number of smaller places not the convention center with thousands of beds. Exactly. So those smaller scale cooling centers uh, were an important lesson learned. Another one is um, allowing pets in all of those places because a lot of people will not leave their animals behind. And then finally, uh, making sure that public transit is on board with the the sense of emergency and making sure that uh, people can ride for free to get someplace cool. That's Dr. Jennifer Vines, lead health officer for the Portland metro area. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
Netflix's hit supernatural drama Stranger Things drops two final episodes in its fourth season today. NPR TV critic Eric Dagan says these oversized episodes, which have been anticipated by fans for weeks, succeed by leaning into everything that makes the show compelling and exciting. What I have come to love about Stranger Things for its season, beyond the expanded episodes, new characters, and amped up action, is how established characters reveal new depths. Like Dr. Martin Brenner, a meticulous, ruthless scientist played by Matthew Modine. He helped raise the show's heroine, a teen with telekinetic and telepathic powers known as Eleven, played by Millie Bobby Brown. The doctor's been helping Eleven strengthen her powers to take on Vecna, also named Henry, a villain from an alternate universe called the Upside Down who has targeted Eleven's friends. And Brenner has figured out why. Your friends are in terrible danger. With each victim he takes, Henry is chiseling away at the barrier that exists between our two worlds. Chiseling? Imagine, if you will, the barrier between our worlds is a concrete dam. Henry is putting cracks in this dam. And eventually it will reach a breaking point and the dam will burst. Not exactly the most comforting pep talk when you're trying to stop an apocalypse. Stranger Things has always turned on an improbable premise. A group of nerdy kids in the fictional town of Hawkins, Indiana, keep horrible creatures from consuming our world with the help of a few bumbling adults. Netflix dropped seven episodes of the show's new season in May, saving two oversized episodes for today, including a season-ending installment over two hours long. I really like these oversized episodes, stuffed with kinetic action and effects, featuring key characters spread all over the globe. For example, David Harbour's emotionally damaged sheriff from Hawkins, Jim Hopper, was thought dead but actually landed in a Russian prison. In these final episodes, after Renona Ryder's Joyce Byers grabbed a friend and raced off to save him, they are stuck trying to force a bizarre Russian pilot to fly them out of the country. Watch your mouth or I am going to take this. I'm going to rub it along the bottom of my shoe and I'm going to jam it down your throat. Go ahead. But then you'll never make it out of my country alive. So you can get us out. For a glass of water and hot steam bath. And five feet stack of American dollars. Okay, maybe that makes more sense when you've seen all the episodes. I also loved moments when the action would pause for characters to connect. In one moment, Joyce's son Will and his friend Mike, who's dating Eleven, are looking for her. Mike, played by Finn Wolfhard, frets he's not good enough for his super-powered girlfriend. Will, played by Noah Schnapp, says he's wrong. It's just she's so different from other people. And when you're, when you're different, sometimes you feel like a mistake. But you make her feel like she's not a mistake at all. Like she's better for being different. And that gives her the courage to fight on. If she was mean to you or, or she seemed like she was pushing you away, it's probably just because she's scared of losing you, just like you're scared of losing her. As Will hides the tears in his eyes, you wonder if he hasn't revealed a bit more about how he feels towards Mike than he planned. It's those moments that really left me loving these last two installments of Stranger Things fourth season and eagerly awaiting what they have planned for the next. I'm Eric Deggins. Planning to travel this summer? Well, buckle up and pack some patience because demand for travel is up, but there are fewer flights to go around. 
going to be a Hunger Games-like battle to get the fares you want, the flights you want. Why summer travel is so chaotic right now on today's episode of our podcast, Consider This. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 6.30, it's Marketplace, including a look at the logistics associated with a growing list of companies saying they will cover employee expenses to travel out of state for abortion care. It's 84 degrees in Boston and a chance of some showers and thunderstorms tonight with overnight lows in the low 70s. Showers and thunderstorms likely tomorrow, Saturday's highs in the mid-80s. Sunday, highs in the mid-80s and mostly sunny. And Monday, the 4th of July, sunshine, highs in the low 80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Wicked, flying back to the Citizens Bank Opera House, now through July 24th. Tickets are now available at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. And Sunbug Solar, offering solar and battery storage renewable energy solutions for your home or business. Learn how you can build a resilient future at SunbugSolar.com.